continue our sermon series with Chris John, which is on chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind you. Also, in our first chapter, the listening sermon, the listening Bible has the scripture printed at the top of that as well. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The fear has to be the punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected to love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Tim Hughes, a former pastor and author, writes about fathers who are sarcastic and constantly criticize their sons. And he tells the story when he was a little boy when he was coaching soccer, uh, whose demeaning father would run up and down the field belittling his boy, using words like chicken or words like woman. Because it's the one time that he ever asked the parent to leave the field. But then he goes on to talk about Winston Churchill, who was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the Second World War. And how Winston Churchill had such a father, Lord Randolph Churchill. He didn't like the way that Winston looked. He didn't like his voice. 
He never wanted to spend time with him in a room. He never complimented him. He only criticized Bill Winston. And during his childhood, Winston Churchill wrote letters to his parents begging for his father's attention. This is one of the excerpts from our young Winston's letters. He said, I would rather have been a princess as a bricklayer's mate. It would have been natural. And I would have got to know my father. Everyone has been profoundly impacted in some form or fashion by a lack of human love. By a lack of human love. We've been hurt. We've been wounded. There's this aching sense of being unloved, which always manifests in some sort of relational dysfunction. Many of our problems, though we wouldn't be consciously aware of it, many of our problems stem from a lack of human love. So why is God's love the answer? Why is God's love the answer to the world's problem? We're going to look at the nature of God's love to answer this, and we're going to look at the effects of God's love. We'll start with the nature of God's love. You have to ask the question why, after spending the beginning of chapter 4, exhorting these believers to discern between truth and error, between right and wrong, why does God go into this extended discourse on God's love? And there's two reasons. When you dig into discerning between right and wrong, between truth and error, and you find yourself falling on the right side of the issue, or what you think is the truth side of the issue, you can become very harsh, very unloving, very prideful in correcting the wrong. The other reason John goes into this long discourse on God's love is he just talked about godless spirits in the world. That if godless spirits are at work, then the deeds of the flesh that these spirits are apt to spawn fall close behind. There's a huge temptation to return evil for evil. There's a huge temptation to return wrong for wrong. And so that prompts John to go into this extended call. To love and to love one another. But what kind of love is John talking about? Notice how I phrase the question. It's why is God's love the answer to your problems? I didn't ask why is love the answer to your problems. You could go online, you could listen to TED Talk, you could go to social media, you could find plenty of Phrases and talks and material that would say love is the answer to the world's problems. Speaking primarily of human love. But human love is not ultimately the answer. Because human love, even the most admirable expressions of it, is tainted with sin. It's tainted with selfishness. It's tainted with self centeredness. 
with pride, conditional, and therefore short-lived. And that's why John makes the emphasis in verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God. Human love is not strong. But that he loves us. The answer to your problems, the answer to the world's problems, is God's love. And in verse 7 and 12, John lays out the stunning, astonishing nature of God's love. He does this by emphasizing two truths about it. First, verse 9. In this, the love of God is being manifest among us, that God sent his only Son in the world, so that we might live through him. The word only in verse 9, only Son, that word only is translated only or one and only. And it's used only a handful of times in the New Testament. And the Gospel of Luke is used three times, referring to the only son of the widow of David, the only daughter of Jairus, the only child of the man who sought Jesus' help with his demon-possessed boy. And in the book of Hebrews, it shows up once referring to Isaac, Abraham's one and only son. It's used, it's used to express sadness and emotion, to add emotion to a story, to highlight a story in which a child, an only child of parents, is in dire need, or is threatened, or has died. So John uses that word here to bring emotion. To bring aspect to the truth that God had one son. He had one son, his only son, and he gave his son up so that you could live. John very intentional this morning that God gave up his only son so that you could live. Now, why did he send his son? Verse 10, second truth there. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's astonishing love moves him to send his son, but not just to send him, but to be a propitiation. That's a big word. It takes the word. Here's what it means. Propitiation is a wrath removing sacrifice. Your sin, my sin, deserves punishment. It deserves the punishment of death, eternal separation from God. That is the just, right punishment of sin. Jesus is the propitiation. He took that punishment of death upon himself so that you wouldn't have to take it upon yourself. Jesus died so that you could live. This is the astonishing nature of God's love. If you were to go to the 9-11 Museum in New York City, 
you would find an exhibit that displays a red bandana. This red bandana belonged to a little boy that's six years old. His name was Wells Crowder. His dad gave him this red bandana when he was six and told him that the, the white, clean, starch, pressed handkerchiefs that go in the dress pocket of the jacket are for show. So he gave his son this red bandana. Wells, at the age of 15, we volunteered for the Empire of Hood and Ladder Company, working with his dad in the forest, had the red bandana with him. When he went off to Boston College to play lacrosse, he wore the red bandana around his head, underneath his helmet. And when he became an equities player, the South Tower of the World Trade Center, he brought that red bandana with him every day. He had it with him. September 11, 2004. And the United States Airlines crashed and spilled into the South Bank. Several floors below Wells was a woman by the name of Lynn Young. She was blown back by the explosion. Dust, debris, carnage everywhere. When she finally was able to see someone again, there was a young man standing in front of her as well. And he said to her, he said, I found the stairs, follow me. And so he led Lynn Young and several others down 17 flights of stairs where they met firefighters who then took them down another 20 flights of stairs to elevators that were still working. Except that Wells didn't fall in them. He turned around and went back up. Went back up, found another woman by the name of Judy Reed, who had broken her arm. Broken her ribs, punctured her lungs. And he grabbed her and several others, and he brought them down 17 flights of stairs to the firefighters who were waiting to go down another 20 flights to the elevators that were working. Except again, Wells didn't go down with it. He went back up. He never made it out of the south tower. They found his body in the first place. Surrounded by this woman, firefighters. They estimate that Wells probably saved a dozen lives that day. He was 24 years old. Now, I just made a point that human love is imperfect because it's taken to sin. And if John's emphasis here is not on human love, John's emphasis here is on God's astonishing love. Then why do I just share the story of a very moving act of human self-sacrifice? Because if you're moved by that story, in stories like then how much more should we be moved by Jesus Christ's perfect sacrifice? That he died for you so that you could live forever. That's the astonishing nation of God's love. And John intends by the language in these verses to communicate 
Why is God's love the answer to your problems? First, we look at the astonishing nature of His love. But what do we do the effects of God's astonishing love? There's two profound effects of His love. In other words, what does God's astonishing love produce? Now, before I get to those effects, understand this that God's astonishing love does not become effective in your life until you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That His love becomes effective through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He is in God. And verse 13 tells us that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 15. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So faith in Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit dwells within, and it brings you to a place of knowing and believing the love that God has for you. But while faith in Jesus Christ is what brings you to experience God's love, God's love actually becomes effective in your life before you ever respond to faith. This is what's even more astonishing. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John's going back to his gospel, John chapter 3, and teaching that rebirth happens before you ever respond. That God rebirths you. He gives you a new heart that is willing and able to respond to Jesus Christ. Then you respond. This brings incredible assurance. This means that God pursues you with His love, pours His love out on you, gave you a brand new heart before you ever had a chance to impress Him with your good works. Which means that God loves you. Not because you do good things. God loves you because He loves you. Period. Now, back to the effects of this astonishing love. What are the effects? There's two. First, verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The word translated punishment here shows up one other time in the New Testament. Matthew 25, verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So God's astonishing love casts out fear of punishment. Now let's speak to fear for a second. Fear produces self protection and self preservation. If there's danger lurking, 
And we have this instinct, instinct to protect ourselves. And, and we know that most commonly in the physical sense. If you're walking down a dark alley late at night and someone's following you, you become fearful. And you go into self-protection mode. But most of the fear that we deal with is in the emotional and the relational realm. Because you have been wounded and hurt by others, which everyone has, if you live in this world, you've been wounded, you've been hurt. Maybe by parents growing up. Maybe by a friend who took advantage of you. Or maybe by a coach or a teacher who treated you inappropriately, or, or, or maybe by a spouse, or a lover, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend who emotionally abused you, maybe even physically. And what happens is because we are wounded and hurt, and that happens repeatedly over a lifetime, we build these walls of emotion, which says, you know what? I'm throwing walls. I'm not getting hurt again, which means I'm going to isolate myself. And I'm going to go into this kind of emotional prison that says, I don't trust anybody. I don't let anybody in. I'm walled off time. Because I've been in fear. Fear of being hurt produces those walls. And it can produce this emotional prison that we live in. It produces this emotional prison. Here's the point of time. There are four of here. That manifesting relationships, which brings isolation and lack of trust, all of that starts with that. The starting point of your fear of horizontality is, is fear of God. Here's why you are created in the image of God, which means you're created to know God, to have a relationship with Him, a close, intimate, soul satisfying. So rejoice in relationship with him. But sin has captured that. And we're all deeply aware, innately aware of our sin. And it offends God. This separated us from him. And so we're all deeply, intimately aware of the punishment that our sins do. Which is what causes us to throw walls up in front of God as if we can do so. Which is, I'm not going to have the dark and the door of church. I'm not going to give enough Christian. I'm, I'm going to keep God as far away as possible. So the fear starts with God. And I may talk about this, and you may not consciously be aware of this, but if you have horizontal fear in relationships that keeps you walling people off and not trusting, that's evidence of your fear of God. The fear of punishment. Which is what John is speaking of. As the walls go up before God, before others, out of fear of punishment, with no confidence on the day of judgment. Imagine you're out in the field, middle of the field, and you're looking in all directions and you see smoke off in the distance. And you're out in the field, the wind starts to take off, and suddenly it's like a smoke, but you hear crackling. And you look around and you realize there's a brush fire that's approaching all around it. It's moving in quickly because the wind has picked up. And you realize that you're stuck. You're trapped. If you can't get out, 
And the guy who's with you points pretty close to you this longer circle of scorched, burning earth. A couple days before, some people had been camping. They left their campfire and out of control. They caught the brush on fire, and it just scorched the earth. It finally went out, but it left this big, round circle of scorched earth. The guy says, I didn't just stand in the middle you stand in the middle of the scorched earth as the brush fire is approaching, and suddenly you find your fear disappear. Because you realize this fire is not going to burn where it has already burned before. The day of judgment, God's righteous judgment is like a brush You can't escape. But when you stand, in the burning over the sports earth, you're saying, Christ's death on the cross is the burning over place where God's judgment has already burned thoroughly through. So that when you stand in that, on that, there's no judgment left because Christ took for you. That's the safe place. That's where you huddle. And that's where you receive God's love and you realize that Christ was the propitiation. The wrath of the sacrifice for you. And as you receive God's love and the law comes down before him, you realize, I'm not condemned. There's no punishment left for me. I've got a child I'm deeply loved. Then that wall coming down begins to crumble the walls around you. The emotional prison door. And you can walk again, even though you make it hurt again. So the first effect of God's love is that it casts out fear. Before God, which translates to casting out fear before him. His perfect love casts out fear. Second effect of God's love. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, we see in the study of what God so far. And anytime John uses the word commandments, he's not just talking about every broad last commandment of God. He's talking about the command to love one another. And what he lays out here is two truths about loving one another. The first is God says that the command to love one another is not burdensome for those who have been born of God. Now, you and I know how burdensome it is to love you. It can be incredibly burdensome to love people, especially people who are hard to love, or people who have hurt us, or wounded us, or people who look different than us, think different than us, act different than us. So that, that can be very burdensome. The other reason it's burdensome to love others is that you and I are very selfish. Back to self-preservation, self-protection. People have wounded you. People have hurt you. 
And so out of self-preservation, self-protection, you say, I, I am not going to love people again. Because I'm not going to get hurt again. I'm not putting my heart out there again and getting it crushed. Right? So that, that's the wall that goes on. And so loving people can be very burdensome. And yet John says here that the command to love one another is not burdensome. Why? Why? Because Christ's death in your place that reverses you, draws you to faith, gives you resources to love others that you don't have in yourself. Think about an artesian well. They all know what the world is an artesian well. That's what I'm going to ask the first service. Show me a video of one in downtown Jacksonville. I'll explain what it is. Laura just got the ground. Here's what happened. They drill a hole down to the surface into an underground aquifer, which is basically a river underground. An artesian well is one that's drilled with a sufficient pressure so that that water is forced out of the pipe, right? out of the top of the surface of the, of the ground. That's an artesian well, and they can be capped. In other words, once you drill one, you cap it. But when the cap's removed, water begins to Christ, death in your place. By which you're born of God, by which you're drawn to faith, untaps an artesian well of selfishness. By which you can love others sacrificially and you can care for others sacrificially. That's the first truth to know about God's command love of others. It's not burdensome. Those who have been born of God. Being Christ is not burdensome. Second, Second half of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words, those who love God love the children of God. Let me explain this on a human level. If you have a good friend who you love deeply, and your friend has children, you love your friend's children. Because you love your friend. Imagine you're, you're watching a, a bunch of kids. And let's just say, this never happens to kids, but let's say two kids are just really annoying and really disrespectful and really not behaving. Right? Two kids. The one kid, you don't really know the parents. No relationship with the parents. The other one is difficult to love. Uh, you know the parents. In fact, you're really close friends with the parents. And, and you love them deeply. And you find as you're watching these kids that there's a ton of grace and there's a ton of patience and a ton of understanding. Like with this child whose parents he loves deeply. That, that's what John is communicating with. Those who love God the Father love God the Father's children, those who have been born of him. Now, use that. I'm going to say something here that's going to step in the toes. I'm going to give you a warning. But self-awareness is really important. You are really difficult to love. I am really difficult to love. We are really 
difficult to love. You would never go to your friend who you love and say, I love you so much. But I hate them. They are just annoying. They are disrespectful. They don't behave. So here's the deal. I want to spend time with you because I love you so much. But when we spend time together, we can spend away so we can enjoy each other. You never say that. This is what John is getting at first point. He says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, God's child, and the worst of is a lie. Loving God and loving others are components of one inseparable whole. Trying to separate love for God from love for others is like trying to separate heat from the sun. I'll leave you with three questions. One, are you astonished by God's love for you? Displayed in Jesus Christ. Two, have you responded to God's word by trusting Jesus Christ and his death in your presence? Number three, are you loving others by sacrificially caring for them out of the deep well of Christ's love? Forgive us for going cold to for taking for granted. You gave up your one son for people who are very difficult to love so that we could become your children. We are deeply, deeply grateful. Father, with your perfect love, cast out fear in our hearts. Fear before you, fear of punishment. And that translates into casting out fear that we have before others. To secure as your child, secure in your love. That you would love others sacrificially. Even if it means that we get hurt again. Free us from our emotional prison of isolation. Free us from transparency. And the selfless acts of love towards your children and you love them. Father, we close now and worship as we sit on.